center of the track. The great French mare Goldacova won 14 group or grade one races, an astounding nine of them against males. Three of those wins came here in the United States in three consecutive runnings of the Breeders' Cup Mile. Goldacova has won. Because of her exploits here as well as in Europe, Goldacova will be inducted into the Racing Hall of Fame in Saratoga Springs in August. Goldacova is the culmination of an amazing story of survival, of deep family connections, incredible cunning, the building of one of the most well-known corporate brands in all the world, Chanel, and of course, an indomitable race mare. The story of Hall of Fame inductee Goldacova is next here on In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. The year was 1924. The place? Paris. World War I, the war to end all wars, had concluded five years earlier, and the Roaring Twenties was in full swing on both sides of the Atlantic. That year, a French couturier named Gabrielle Coco Chanel was working on developing a line of perfumes. Chanel was a budding dressmaker, a perfumer, and a milliner, But running a business wasn't her forte. She needed some help, wider distribution. Through a connection to a large department store owner in town, Coco Chanel was introduced to brothers Pierre and Paul Wertheimer. The Wertheimers ran a perfume company of their own, Bourgeois. Chanel biographer Lisa Cheney takes up the story. The Wertheimers had apparently a brief conversation in which uh, Chanel agreed that she would allow them to become her distributors. She had been developing a series of perfumes, including Chanel No. 5, but she was more interested in fashion than perfume, or in running a business. Chanel biographer Hal Vaughn says that in 1924, in exchange for marketing and promoting Gabrielle Chanel's products, Brothers Pierre and Paul Wertheimer initially wound up with 70% of most of her assets. The relationship began on a perfectly even good business basis. At that time, I don't think Chanel ever realized the potential of this business. Uh, These are early days. People weren't exploiting perfume and cosmetics in keeping with fashion. Chanel biographer Rhonda Garalick. Let's not forget, this is a woman in an era where... It was absolutely unheard of for a woman to have a company like this. It was unheard of even to work. So by 1924, she was making great strides, but she could never have imagined herself capable of launching a global corporation. These men, these brothers, saw in her potential that, when reflected back to her, was extremely enticing. That was the beginning of the relationship, but it was also the beginning of the problems. The perfume was the fifth of ten sample fragrances presented to her by the perfumer commissioned by Chanel's lover, a Russian Grand Duke, hence the name Chanel No. 5. That perfume became the core of the business, 
one whose sales rose meteorically. Chanel biographer Hal Vaughn says that soon after the Wertheimer brothers went into business with Coco Chanel, the fashionista had seller's remorse. As years went by, Chanel believed, probably un, uh, incorrectly, that she hadn't gotten what she should have gotten for the business, and that it was only the clever Wertheimers who had somehow cheated her out of this. When World War II broke out, Chanel saw a unique opportunity to try to reclaim her namesake brand using rules the Nazis put in place against Jews, like the Wertheimers. Lisa Cheney and Hal Vaughn pick up the story. She was connected with trying to oust them from the border of Chanel using the ionization laws. This was partly in reaction to the fact that in 1934, they had had her, Chanel, thrown off the board. And so it, it was this constant tit for tat. When the Nazis came to power, she uh, had a series of goals. And one of the singular goals was to get her perfume business back. And to do this, she worked with a, a man whose name was Dr. Kurt Blanc. He was a terrible man. He was one of the leading Nazis in Paris whose business was using the Aryan laws, Hitler's Aryan laws, to seize Jewish property. In 1940, uh, Germany had occupied France and Paris was occupied by the Germans. And if you were Jewish, it became more and more difficult to do anything without license. And that was very much included people in the arts, so writers, actors, playwrights, artists, all those kinds of people. Aryanization laws also dictated that Jews could not own property. It would be confiscated and given over to the Nazi government. That would include the Chanel brand. Pierre Wertheimer was, uh, he was very handsome, but he was a very charming man and apparently very calm. But he was always, as was his brother, they were always determined that Chanel was not going to get the better of them. Pierre and Paul Wertheimer were able to get out of Paris before the Nazi clampdown, and they moved to New York. But there was still the matter of their company, Chanel. Hal Vaughn explains their plan. Uh, essentially, what the Wertheimers did was to sell their business to a non-Jew, an Aryan. Felix Amio was his name. He manufactured airplanes for the French army and eventually ended up by manufacturing airplanes for the German Luftwaffe. So he had a certain protection built in. And in fact, he used that. He used his major client, Hermann Göring, commander-in-chief of the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, to stop Kurt Blanc from seizing this property. Kurt Blanc had to back off, and Chanel was defeated. Because Felix Amio aided the German war effort, the Wertheimers held a great deal of leverage against him as they went to buy their company back. They basically arranged for a witness protection-like arrangement for Amio, who could have been prosecuted on war crimes charges. Amio sold the Chanel business back to Pierre and Paul Wertheimer, but the brothers were far from done with the company's namesake. She was a wily old thing, and this disgusting law happened to be around, and so she was going to try and use it to her advantage. But the motivation did not come, first of all, from anti-Semitism. It came, above all, from her, her fury at what she regarded as a bad bargain. It became a kind of... Um, 
a litany, really, for her, for the large part of her life, until the latter part of her life, when they brought her out and looked after her, actually. The relationship was very, very rocky over all of these years, although there is some evidence that Paul Wertheimer was very, very... He was enchanted by Chanel, is the least to say, if he wasn't in love with her. There's some evidence that he might have been in love with her. Chanel biographer Rhonda Garalick suggests that Coco Chanel might not have really opposed the Wertheimer brothers at all. Someone who knew Chanel back in the day suggested to me that, in fact, it was all a kind of play acting in which Chanel performed this desire to seize the control in order just to give credibility to the complicated maneuvers that Wertheimers had achieved. I've had it suggested to me that, in fact, Chanel understood this was happening and her part was to seem outraged and ready to wrest control in order to make it all look good. I cannot tell you if that's true, but it's a fascinating possibility. Once again, Lisa Cheney. After the war in 1954, when Chanel, I call it the comeback, after she had given up her fashion house for 15 years, and she decided to come back, and all the rest of the Chanel company were very worried about this happening, and they strongly advised the Wertheimers not to become involved. Pierre actually went to see her certainly once, perhaps on more than one occasion, and he was convinced that this was probably, on balance, a good thing. And so he told her that he would back her. This letter Chanel wrote to Pierre in 1964. Pierre died in 1965. In this letter, she says, My dear Pierre, I was very touched by your personal letter. As you thought, all my desires are now fully gratified by the latest modification in our agreements to which you allude. This was the Wertheimers buying Chanel out so that she could run her couture company. But they didn't buy her out in a bad way. They brought her out in such a way that she was actually looked after. And this is what she's referring to in this letter. I am persuaded that the future reserves for us both as much satisfaction as how collaboration has brought me till now. She's referring to the last 40 years of their relationship, this difficult relationship. But as I told you, from now on, I am depending above all on your moral support. I embrace you tenderly. I don't think anyone could write a letter like that 20 years after the war if their relationship had simply been an acrimonious one. As I said, it was a many-layered, nuanced relationship. And for me, that letter says it all, really. When this In The Gate podcast returns, the Wertheimer's prolific racing operation joins with a formidable family of horsemen that ultimately produces one of the greatest racehorses ever known. Welcome back to In the Gate. Welcome back to In the Gate. They are called Wertheimer et Frere, literally, Wertheimer and Brother. When you're talking about Elaine and Gerard, it's not clear which is the main Wertheimer and which is the brother. But in reality, the outfit should be called Wertheimer et Family, since their reach in thoroughbred racing goes back to 1910. Pierre Wertheimer was first introduced to Gabrielle Chanel in 1922 at Longchamp Racecourse, the regular home of the Arc de Triomphe, Europe's biggest race. Chanel biographer Lisa Cheney says 
that their complicated relationship even extended into horse racing. There's this very particular famous occasion where Pierre's horse won the derby, which of course is in England, and he was very, very excited, and the first person he came to see when he got back to Paris was Chanel, and um, she was determinedly not going to compliment him and made out that she didn't know, and he said, surely you know, and she said, what? And he said, I've just won the derby, are you not pleased for me? That same year that Pierre Wertheimer first met Chanel, 1922, his so-called wonder horse, Epinard, won the Prix de la Forêt and the Prix d'Espahan, among others. Almost 90 years later, his grandsons would win the same races, but this time with a female runner. We'll get to her in a few moments. In those heady days of racing in the early 1900s, large operations would all hire private trainers, the way Aidan O'Brien does today for Coolmore, or Saeed bin Saroor and Charlie Appleby do for Godolphin. The Wertheimers had had a private trainer in the early years, Gene Lee, an American from Illinois. Then during the Second World War, while the Wertheimers were exiled in America and fighting to keep their company, Pierre found a new man to lead his racing operation, Alec Head. Alec was a descendant of one of a group of English trainers who first established racing in France in the 1830s. Alec's father and grandfather had started as jockeys and become trainers. For the Wertheimers, Alec conditioned an Epsom Derby winner, Levandant, in 1956, and two winners of Europe's biggest race, the Arc de Triomphe, for Pierre's son, Jacques, who spent much of his adult life in the horse stables. The first of those Arc winners, Ivan Hika, in 1976, featured Alec's son, Freddy, as the rider and his older sister, Criquette, as the trainer. Freddy took an immediate liking to the Wertheimer family. Ah, uh, lovely people. Very, very sport, sportsmen, loving the sport, loving the racing, uh, the breeding. The two families, the Heads and the Wertheimers, became so close over the years that they are now neighbors in the Saratoga Del Mar of France, Deauville. Criquette took over the full-time training of the Wertheimers' horses from her father in 1983. Freddie Head retired from riding in 1997 and began training as well, just as his father and grandfather had done. It wasn't long before he started preparing horses for Jacques Wertheimer's sons, Elaine and Gerard. They just kept a low profile. They followed uh, the stable, but um, when they got, uh, when they came to be the, the owners of the stable, then they started to uh, to really uh, be involved, and they're doing a lot, a lot in the stable. They're doing all the crossings, the breeding, and everything. In 2002, jockey Olivier Pellier began riding as the Wertheimer's first called jockey at home and uh, his normal people. It's like, uh, okay, there is a passion. If you love the boat, he's talking about the boat. If you love the bike, they're talk, talking about the bike. But uh, they love the horses and they have a lot of good stable. So we talk about the horses for the future. Elaine and Gerard Wertheimer had never combined with trainer Freddie Head on a major stakes winner, but they handed him their Irish-bred two-year-old filly in 2007. Her name was Goldakova. From the beginning, though, she resembled a colt more than a filly, according to Olivier Pellier, the man who rode her in each of her 27 starts. In the stall, you don't go straight to the stall to say, you say hello. You know, she's, the box is the home, the really home, and she fights. Freddie, he won't come one time, 
and she bite him. Goldakova won both of her starts at Shanti at age two, but after finishing second twice as a three-year-old, including the French Oaks, Goldakova ripped off three wins in a row in Europe. The second of those wins was the pre-Rothschild, which she would eventually win four straight years. It was that first pre-Rothschild in 2008 that turned Freddie's head. And that day she won in her trot, so I thought that was a bit special. And I knew then that she was something, something special, really. Freddie is very, very surprised because in the morning, you know, she, she was very well, but not, not like that. A month after the pre-Rothschild in September of 2008, Golda Kova defeated males for the first time. It came at Longchamp in the Prix des Moulins. One of those she beat, Henry the Navigator, had won the English and French 2000 guineas, the St. James's Palace at Royal Ascot, and the Sussex Stakes that year. Then it came time to plan the remainder of Goldacova's season. Here's jockey Olivier Pellier. When you, you arrive after uh, August, you have this uh, solution to run the Prix de Moulin de Longchamp on the mile, and then after, they go to Bredesca. And everybody prepared the horse for that. Now, as a jockey, Freddie Head had ridden the Philly Miesque to consecutive victories against males in the Breeders' Cup Mile here in the States. So Head didn't think twice about bringing Golda Kova westward to California to Santa Anita for a shot at a championship. We're timers, brother. They love running in, in the States and uh, in the Breeders' Cup. So uh, there was no question we would go and try. Goldakova tucked in in the white cap now. Can she get out of there? Goldakova waiting patiently for room. Nowhere to go. Here's Precious Kitten, the other filly running a big one. And Kip Deville, the bray. Kip Deville has let loose, but Goldakova goes through at the rail. And look at the acceleration from Goldakova as she bursts forward. And what a brilliant filly is this. Goldakova in an awesome effort. Outrun Kip Deville to win it well. I knew she would adapt to American racing because she had a lot of speed. And uh, that day, she was extraordinary, the way she won, coming from behind and with a great turn of foot. Uh, she was just extraordinary. Goldakova's 2009 season included wins at Newmarket and a second straight pre-Rothschild in early August. Then, on just two weeks of rest, short by today's standards, the four-year-old filly beat Colts again in the Group 1 Jacques Merois at Deauville. The Rothschild is a little bit not easy, but is only Philly. It's like a good level before the pre Jacques Lamar. Jacques Lamar is more stronger. I was expecting a great thing. I mean, she was at her best. And two weeks in Deauville, you stay on the same spot. She did have a hard race in the pre Rothschild, so I knew we could do something in the Jacques Lamar. That's what she did. Females racing against males is much more common in Europe than in North America, so Goldakova's win in the Jacques Merois may have seemed more matter-of-fact to the locals than to U.S. observers, says British race caller Richard Hoyles. I think it is a cultural thing. I think particularly in the U.K., they take each other on more regularly. At the higher level, there is no doubt that it would not be anywhere near as significant uh, in Europe a filly to take on a colt at a high level than it would be compared, I think, to, to racing in North America. Regardless of who the competition was, that win in the Jacques Merois was Goldakova's sixth group or grade one. Her next race came in a similar location, Santa Anita Park, for a title defense in the Breeders' Cup mile, but the style was a lot different. 
They come into the top of the lane and Cowboy Cal strikes the front. Golda Cover in the white cap hooked to the extreme outside. Courageous Cat gets the lead, but Golda Cover is coming home like an express train down the centre. Courageous Cat running a huge one. Golda Cover's going to have to switch out a little. She does so though. Coming with a late run, just enough humour. But Golda Cover is just scintillating. Golda Cover is something special. Golda Cover and Olivia Paleo win it again. How nervous were you that you wouldn't get there? Yeah, but the, 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 the race is very fast. She's very relaxed. And just honestly, the French horse, when you run in America, compare like English horses. Because the French horse have a good turn of foot. A little bit, the first race, take a little bit of time, and then after, they finish well. Elaine and Gerard Wertheimer were no strangers to racing success in America. They had won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies in 2003 with Half Bridled. And a decade earlier, in 1992, they moved one of their male runners from Cricket Head Marrick in France to California under the care of Richard Mandela. That horse was Kota Shan, who in 1993 won six of his ten starts, including the Breeders' Cup turf, and took home Horse of the Year honors. Kota Shan and Half Bridled, though, were one-year wonders. Goldakova had put together back-to-back championship campaigns in 2008 and 2009, and the best was still to come as Head tried some new challenges for his superstar mare. She started her five-year-old campaign with a win in the Prix de Ispahan. She'd finished seventh in that race a year earlier. Then, the great mare made her first appearance on one of the sport's grandest stages, Royal Ascot, where she took on males once again in the opening race of the meeting, the Queen Anne Stakes. That's a great race on the calendar, and we had to try and, and win that race too. Uh, she won over the straight course, so uh, we knew she was going to be favorite for that kind of race. It, my only worry was the distance. Ascot is a very, very hard mile, straight mile with up and downs, and I knew that was going to be the, the maximum uh, distance for her. Rip Van Winkle strikes the lead from Calming Influence. Here's Goldakova striding up to them on the outside very easily. And Paco Boy needs to make up four lengths on this leader. And the champ, the champion filly, Goldakova under the whip, but she sprints two in front. Paco Boy emerges from the ruck now as the only danger. It's Goldakova in front. Paco Boy cutting her down with every stride. In front is Goldakova. Paco Boy is flying. Goldakova and Paco Boy in a photo. British race caller Richard Hoyles, the voice of Royal Ascot, says that Goldakova's Queen Anne win was perhaps her most extraordinary. Afterwards, lots of people suggested that Paco Boy might have been an unlucky loser because when Goldakova got to the front, Paco Boy was quite well back. And had Paco Boy been ridden more closely, he may well have been the victor that day. Personally, I think Goldakova went soon enough. I don't think she was a lucky winner. Jockey Olivier Pellier understood that crossing the wire first at Royal Ascot meant more than just a win in Goldakova's ledger. Oh, this is, when you win in Ascot, is like the best meeting, and you have the queen, and uh, you can see all the toilets, you know, like for fashion, and for uh, horses, and you can see all the horses coming, and also the, the best thing is the queen, she's here. The Queen Anne was Goldakova's ninth group or grade one win, sixth against males. After pocketing her third consecutive pre-Rothschild against females, she tried for a repeat in the Jacques Merois. But the ground at Deauville was softened by rain, which wasn't Goldakova's preference. She finished a very close second to Mockfee. Then, 
Yet another new challenge for Goldakova with an eye on the Breeders' Cup. She ran on the undercard of the Arc de Triomphe, taking on 16 males in the Prix de la Forêt. Goldikova's looking comfortable. Goldikova in the centre of three. Paco Boy on the outside. Goldikova, can Paco Boy overhaul her? He's not done it yet. Goldikova, Paco Boy. How's it going to be? They've still got a bit to go. Goldikova, Paco Boy. What a super race. And poor old Paco Boy. He just cannot peg back that mare. She has an amazing race because she goes very fast. And another one is coming, and he won't, uh, they won't fight with me. And he passed just in front of me, and I stay behind him. And when I'm coming outside, she just accelerates. So then, after when you are when you ride uh, the horse like that, you know you have the champion in your hand. Because I thought it was a good prep race to go to the Breeders' Cup. That's using a Group One race as a prep. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen that often. No, I mean she was she was raised run, but you know it's a sort. Uh, it's a good it's a good race before going to America. On November sixth, two thousand ten, the talk of the racing world was a female who was taking on colts, but it wasn't Goldakova. It was Zenyatta, who the prior year had become the only filly or mare to win the Breeders' Cup Showpiece race, the Classic. Zenyatta's come to the outside. Zenyatta coming flying on the grandstand side. Gio Conti on the inside. Summerbird is right there. This is unbelievable. Zenyatta, what a performance. One will never forget. Looked impossible. Zenyatta had won all 19 of her starts. She would, of course, lose by a nose to blame in her final career performance. But earlier in the afternoon, at a place that had seen so much racing history, Churchill Downs, the mare who had beaten Colt seven times already, had a chance to pull off her own unprecedented feat, a third straight Breeders' Cup win. So when you brought her back to the Breeders' Cup for the third time, how much pressure did you feel considering no horse had ever won three Breeders' Cup races at that point? But the horse don't know. The, the horse know only the track. They know your staff, you are right. The, the owner and the trainer, they say, OK, you know the Philly, do your job. Let's see, Goldakova has seven to make up. Goldakova's going to have to kick it in. They turn for home and Sydney's Candy gets a tap on the shoulder, goes on for home. Now Goldakova's unwinding her right in the centre of the track. Goldakova's let loose, she's flying. Sydney's Candy, the usual QT's in there as well. But Goldakova's catching with each and every stride. Are we to see history this afternoon? Here's Papa Boy late, but no, Goldakova, a true champion. You put the, the pressure on the horse because you're very excited, because you're very nervous. They feel the nervous. If you feel relaxed, the horse, they feel relaxed also. For me, could be one of the greatest souvenirs of my, my career, winning in Churchill with something, uh, something incredible. For her 2010 season, Goldakova was named European Horse of the Year, and she'd won the second of her back-to-back top older horse awards as well. We all hope that, as we age, we can do so gracefully. Before his 2017 renaissance, Roger Federer hadn't been quite the same player since 2010. 
but even then, he would still routinely reach the semifinals of most Grand Slam tournaments he entered in this decade. Goldakova won the Prix de Ispahan against males and a fourth straight Prix Rothschild against females. But sprinkled among those wins were runner-up finishes in the Queen Anne, the Jacques Merois, and the Prix de la Forêt. Goldakova's come through to join Worth. That dream ahead's a length and a half behind him on the outside, but now closing down on Goldakova. Surfrider closing behind them. It's going to be Goldakova and Dream Ahead fighting it out now. They're racing down towards the last 200 metres. The white and blue is Goldakova. The pink jacket is Dream Ahead, who looks to be narrowly in front. They hit the line very close between Dream Ahead and Goldakova. All outstanding efforts against males but a notch below what the now six-year-old had accomplished in years past. In her connections' minds, it was all a prep for Goldakova's final career start as she went for a fourth straight win in the Breeders' Cup Mile. It's Goldakova in the race of her life, Turalur, court vision, court vision, going to outrun it, Turalur on the outside. Oh, they hit it together, too close to court, court vision, Turalur an inch in it, Goldakova, what a magnificent run, she almost got there. The 2011 Breeders' Cup Mile would be Goldakova's final start in the country where she achieved her most memorable victories. Though she ran just four races in the United States, Goldakova was elected in 2017 to the Hall of Fame in Saratoga Springs, New York. In all, she won 17 races in 27 starts, earning over $7 million. And Goldakova's 14 group or grade one wins are the most ever by a European flat racer. Here's British race caller Richard Hoyles. She started her three-year-old career running in April, I think it was, and then she ended it by winning the Breeders' Cup at Santa Anita right at the end of the year. And she did that for four years in a row. <laughs> and that's really hard with a filly, you know, because if they come in season and have off days and you've got to work out their cycles, you would think the law of averages would suggest that she would underperform at least three or four occasions just because of their menstrual cycle or whatever, but didn't seem to affect her. She just seemed to be able to perform whenever she was asked to race. I'm very happy. I'm very happy for her. Very happy for the wet timers. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. I think uh, I've been very lucky to to train a horse like her. You know, it's very hard to find a horse like that. You know, like a, it's a dream, and uh, she have everything. What What do you want? Speed, acceleration, and she fight all the time, and she never back down. As she barreled down the lane on the interior grass course at Churchill Downs to win her third consecutive Breeders' Cup mile, a lone figure ran alongside Goldakova on the outer dirt track, exhorting and throwing his hands up in the air in elation. That was Terry Blaze, her groom, who tended to her every need for five years. Goldakova was largely the product of Terry Blaze's tender, loving care. But in essence... Running alongside Goldakova that and every afternoon she raced were the ghosts of two families of shrewd and dedicated horsemen, savvy and street-smart businessmen who outsmarted a despotic empire. And if you looked closely enough, perhaps running alongside Goldakova was the fashion legend herself whose complicated relationships and business dealings nearly a century earlier fueled one of the iconic brand names in all the world. And maybe, just maybe, on one of those 17 occasions that Goldakova walked into the winner's circle, there was a woman wearing Chanel number no. 5.
You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.